Okay, this tonight is Thursday, June 11, comments and friends. People School for Marcus Slender's study. We're going to be discussing something very important to the party and all Bolshevik parties that are worthy of the name of being Leninist. And that is the issue of factionalism, rumors, gossip within the party, and factionalism specifically. Okay, and how the other two lead to factionalism. So I'm going to divide the class between the national chair from California and I. So would you like to start the presentation? Yes, I'm taking this information from the Marxist Glossary by L. Harry Gould, which is available on our store on the website, for those of you that don't have it. There's a definition here of what a faction is. And from that follows what factionalism is. So a faction is a grouping of individuals within the Communist Party around one or more specific lines of difference with the policy of the party. The existence of factions is incompatible with party unity, leads to the creation of a number of centers and the existence of a number of centers connotes the absence of a common center in the party. Now, as you all know, we have one center in our party, which is in New York. That's our national headquarters. And so we are following the line of that center. We don't have individual centers in clubs where we have a different line from our national center. So we don't have factions in our party. Continue, it says, the breach in the unity of will, the weakening and disintegration of the proletarian dictatorship. This does not mean, of course, that the possibility of a conflict of opinion is thus excluded. On the contrary, iron discipline does not preclude but presupposes criticism and conflicts of opinion within the party. Less of all does it mean that this discipline must be blind discipline. On the contrary, iron discipline does not preclude but presupposes conscious and voluntary submission. For only conscious discipline can be truly iron discipline. But after a discussion has been closed, and this is a key point. After a discussion has been closed, after criticism has run its course, and a decision has been made, unity of will and unity of action of all party members become indispensable conditions within which party unity and iron discipline in the party are inconceivable. And that's from Comrade Stalin. Now, when we say unity of will and unity of action, it's kind of like when in a trade union, the example that I was always taught was that in a trade union, when there's a vote to strike, workers vote to strike a place where they work, there's some for and there's some against. When the decision is made, to strike, the minority is beholden to the majority so that 
everyone strikes. Even though they oppose going on strike, they do it because they want to preserve the unity of the union. And the decision that was made by the majority is the decision that everyone is bound by. So in the ideal situation, everybody in the shop will be out walking the picket line, even though they voted not to. And it's the same way in our party. When we have a decision that we make, some people may not agree with that decision, but they had their chance before the decision was made to voice their opinion, and their opinion was not agreed to. So they're bound by the decision that was made by the majority of members of the party. And that's called unity of will. So unity of action means you carry out that decision. And so even though you disagree with it, you carry it out. And so that's what I would like Angelo to explain a little bit on. But first, we should have a discussion if anybody has any questions. I just wanted to say that this is a really important thing. Like, like we're going to get into gossip later, which is also really important. But this aspect is even more important than gossip because imagine – if your club was voting on whether or not to cooperate with a leftist organization in the area and half of your club wanted to do it and the other half thought that that leftist group wasn't pure enough, imagine if you voted to do it and then the ones who thought that it wasn't pure enough showed up and actually started a confrontation with that leftist activist group. It would create a situation where neither side gets what it wants because your club would end up looking like a disorganized band of barbarians as opposed to what it should look like, which is something closer to an army. That's all. Thank you, Gomez. I think my question is that a part of our nature, why does it allow factionalism and all those uh, sorts of tendencies in the party if we can criticize our comrades, you know, with those kinds of tendencies in time, not to allow it to build up to begin with. We have to be very critical of ourselves and also of our comrades. So we have to criticize them in the process if they have those tendencies. Factionalism always happens in the party. If you look at the party in the Soviet Union and other parties globally, that is a very, very pivotal problem. So. I think the parties must not allow factionalism and other tendencies to grow if they apply criticism and self-criticism at all times. Okay. That is my position. I just have a question. When the party comes to a resolution, a united resolution on an issue, how is that disseminated to the rank and file, or how should it be? That's an excellent question. Would anybody like to answer that? Usually that is disseminated by directives or decisions from the National Committee, or in our case, the Politburo, the Central Committee, or the Office of the General Secretary. A memo goes out party-wide to everyone and explains what our position is on the issue and what we're expected to do. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you, comrades. I don't want to harp on for too long, but I just want to say 
Since we're a part of a communist Marxist Leninist party, it's imperative that we follow with democratic centralism and after the period of self-criticism and debate within the party, that all of us unite and get behind that decision. That was very important. Also want to ask a question, what kind of factionalism and sectarianism are you all witnessing in the party right now? What do we need, need to look out for? When we formed our party, we were a pre-party formation. We came out of something called ideological fight path. That was the name of our formation. Most of us were leaders in the old CPUSA, and we were dropped. So we were not beholden to their discipline any longer. And so we were not a faction. We were a new party. And so that's the difference. In our party, we don't have that kind of a situation. We don't have people that are trying to split away from us. Okay, thank you, Kermit. Let me just clarify something for everyone. Our clubs were liquidated, is the word, liquidated by the National Office of the Old Party. I just want to get that through everybody's head. They just dropped us without expelling us. They dropped us. So we got no more communication from the center. Okay? We then formed a group called National Council of Communists, NCCUSA. And we put out a publication called Ideological Fightback, a magazine. And that was pre-party. We were pre-party for about four or five years, and then we became a party. I just wanted to clarify that on the issue of the question we're talking about tonight. Comrades, I just wanted to preface with saying this is one of the things that drew me to the party in the first place. The idea of democratic centralism has a lot of power to it inherently. But I guess my question is, how can we fight it against this tendency in its infancy? I'm glad you brought it up. Factionalism doesn't start as factionalism. There are prerequisites. In the time of Lenin, in the time of Stalin, in the time of the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, which is most of my life in the party, we did not have an Internet, which helped us. Here's how it worked, comrades, so you should know this. In your club, one club was not allowed to communicate with another club. I want you all to know this. And what was the reasoning? The reasoning is that if there were FBI agents in one club and it formed a cancer, it would not spread to other clubs. So one club was not allowed to know who was in other clubs in the party. The only person who knew was the national office. This is important. Everybody understands that. There was no intercommunication with other clubs through an Internet, through telephone, through nothing. And the reason that I just gave you, which is a very valid reason, that if there's cancer in a club through FBI informants or whatever, they will not find out what's going on in the whole party. Now, today's world, it's different. We've had problems in the past, mainly through the Internet, where people in one club will talk to people in another club. Now, I understand there's a certain benefit of that, but you have to look at the other side. Why for 80 years that the party frowned upon that? There was a good reason. Don't kid yourself that the bourgeoisie and the state apparatus is not 
trying to find out as much information about who's in our party. They are. So that's why it was done that way. Today, people are talking to each other freely. People in one club are talking to people in another club in another district. People in one district are talking to people in another district. That's really dangerous. If we don't go through the center, then all our security that we're talking about is going to be null and void. So I don't know if I answered your question, comrade. I don't think that you did. Okay, repeat Um, your question. My question was how to fight back against the tendency of factionalism in its infancy so that it doesn't develop. Okay, well, the way to do it is to be a Leninist party. That's one thing. And to be disciplined is the second thing. And if you have an urge, an urge to say something, try to curb that urge. If you have any kind of problems, you contact the national office. I'm always open to everybody on this phone call. I have never turned anybody away, never. So if you have any questions or problems, you call the national office. But you should first go to your district organizer. But if you can't go to your district organizer for whatever reason, then you call the national office. Uh, I think I answered you now, didn't I? Yes, I understand perfectly. Thank you. Okay. Just wanted to make a quick comment. Like if something happens in the party process that you don't really agree with, it's not really a great idea to leave the party or to try to make a faction because you can fight for what you disagree with later down the line through the party process, and it's just kind of correct. Timeless. That is correct. That's what Forster, William Forster, did. He disagreed with the party when Browder was the general secretary. He disagreed with dissolving the party. So he kept his mouth shut, and he waited for the proper time to voice his objection, and that's what he did. He did not go to the press at the time and tell them about the problems in the party. He showed a united front, which is what a communist leader should do, let alone a cadre. So he did it the correct way. You're entirely correct. Where does the unity of consent come into place? Because we must take into consideration during deliberations of what our party's members' absolute thresholds are, because disagreement in one thing and what's the best thing to do is its own thing, but when there's disagreements that cannot be backed at all by certain comrades, that can lead to those kinds of splits and fractioning and when people leave the party. So it's there are going to be times when the party line is going to disagree with some people's absolute thresholds, but that needs to be taken very seriously and have a firm material analysis behind it because we need to make sure that, yeah, there might be disagreements of what the best thing to do is, but we should have the majority of our party still able to consent to what the agreement was. Okay, let me try to reword what you said. I believe you said because it's very cloudy, in my mind, cloudy what you said. Are you saying, use the word consent. Could you Um, be more specific? Yeah, let me clarify. So basically, just like with fractionings and party, there's going to be ideological differences that are irreconcilable. And what I'm saying is there are times when decisions come up where there are things that are irreconcilable between party members where they cannot consent to be in a party that does them. And that sometimes happens, but we need to make sure that when that does happen, it has a very firm foundation behind it. Otherwise, we're just going to cause a bunch of fractioning. 
Okay, let me explain that again with what happened in 1943. In 1943, the majority of the party voted to dissolve themselves, liquidate themselves. Everyone should be clear of that. There was a small minority disagreed, and that included some of the leaders of the party, William Z. Forster. So what did William Z. Forster and the leaders of the party do that disagreed? Democratic centralism states that if you disagree and you're outvoted, whatever the party's position is, you have to agree to that position and not publicly attack it, not publicly talk to other people in the party who agree with you and then form a faction. That's the way it's worked in a Bolshevik party. Would you like to clarify any part of your question? Yeah, what I was more talking about is um, during the criticism process, we need to make sure we're aware of what levels people are disagreeing on it. Like, if somebody disagrees that this is the best option versus the second best option, that's a whole other thing versus somebody saying, this is something I absolutely cannot stand to be aligned with. And those things need to be taken into account. Okay, let me ask you that. This is a voluntary organization. All political parties are voluntary. Nobody's putting a gun to anybody's head to stay or to leave a party. And in order to stay in a party of Leninist type, you have to follow democratic centralism. If you feel, or anyone feels, if a person feels that they cannot agree for whatever reason, then they have the right to leave the party. And the party is like an open door policy. People come and people go. And when you join a political party, ours has eight points of unity. And as long as someone supports the eight points of unity, they belong in this party. Anything else should not be as important as any of the eight points of unity. That's all I could say, comrades. So I have three questions, and they're all relatively short. The first okay. one is, where do we draw the line between factionalism and comradely debate within the party? The second question is, should the debate be done publicly within the party or like behind closed doors, just the people debating? And the third question is, what happens when, say, for example, there's an underrepresented minority within the party, like an ethnic minority or something, and the party is voting on something revolving around, like, race relations, for example. Okay, here's what I'm getting from your questions. Where is the line drawn on different issues? To me, it's simple. The line is the same. There's no morality involved. That is a different concept for a religion or a church or a sect, a religious sect, but we don't deal with that. We deal with the way it is. As Mark said, the way it is, not necessarily how we feel or ethnic or morality or ethics, things like that. So an example, if the party has a decision on an issue and a person feels that they know what's correct and the majority of the party is incorrect, it has happened. Not always the majority is correct in their decisions on a particular issue. But, and there's a big but, even though that's true, we still have to go with what the majority says. Otherwise, we do not have democratic centralism. We do not have unity of will. And therefore, all I talk about democratic centralism is really, is really nil. 
So we have to do what we have to do. And it's unfortunate if people think that their personal morality is more important. That's common in this country, by the way. It's more important than the collective. Then that's what happens, and they'll have to leave. You may, I may not have answered it to anybody's like anything I've said tonight, but I'm giving it to you the way it is. Did I answer anything? Yeah, you did. Thank you. I just wanted to say that if you ever run into the issue where someone's ideology or opinions disagree too much for them to be in PCUSA, but there's still useful activists that want to help, make them be an MPD. They can still correct. be an MPD. That's correct. Yeah. So, like, you know, if someone leaves the party or doesn't want to be in the party, don't just throw them in the trash. But, like, their place is an MPD, not in PCUSA. That's all I want to say. That's a very good point. And I want to mention, many people that were interviewed when they first joined the party, we were, they were told that not everybody's meant to be in a communist party. That's as true then when you were told that as it is now, as it was in the 1930s, where we got that information from. Not everybody is capable or should be in a communist party, but they can be in a mass organization. As Cameron said, MPD has positions very similar to the party, and they could be a leader and an activist in MPD, but we're not going to water down the ideology of a Leninist party. So they can be in an MPD, a U.S. Friends, in RE, Woman for Racial Economic Equality, and they don't have to be in the party itself. So I hope that's clear. One of the things that Gasol used to say on this subject, sort of a joking kind of a way, because he came from a trade union background, he used to say that we have in the Communist Party, we have many excellent trade unionists. We have people who are outstanding trade unionists. He says, but we don't have very many good communists because they come into the party and they do trade union work. They don't carry out the program of the party. And so that's kind of the same thing. If you have people who join the party and they don't do communist work, what Gus would call the plus, which is to some places we used to say up the ante, it's pushing the working class line up another level. If you're not doing that, then really you're not an effective communist in the party. So that's what he was getting at. That's another way of saying the same thing for trade unionists. But anyway, I have here the Constitution from the Communist Party USA from 1979. And in it, there's a section under principles of organization that reads this way. Decisions of leading committees on major questions shall be reported to all other party bodies. Any member, club, or committee disagreeing with a policy has the right to appeal a decision to the next higher body and request that the question be reopened and to express their views through the channels established for that purpose during pre-convention discussion periods. But no member or leader has the right to violate such decisions or to continue with others 
to conduct an organized struggle for their point of view. Factions are impermissible in the Communist Party. And that's pretty much our view. As long as you do the discussion before you argue the point, before the decision, before the convention has ruled on something, there's going to be all kinds of motions that come through the convention. And then that becomes our policy for the next period, for four or five years. Until that happens, you're free to discuss the issues of the day and what we should do because there's no decision from the party on it. So after that, when the decisions have been made and all the discussion has taken place and everybody has had their say, sooner or later with democratic centralism, a decision has to be made on something. And so when the decision is finally made, you follow that decision, even though you disagreed with it and took an opposite view. But you have no right to argue for your position after it's already been decided that we're not going to do that. And okay. that happens sometimes. Uh, all right. I want to add to that something for everyone. What I found the most democratic time in a communist party in my lifetime was when we had what we call a pre-Congress discussion period. And that is individuals or groups of individuals would get together and they would write up a paper, maybe a page or two, on what they believe the party should take a position on an issue and then give the reasons why. And then that is read and discussed at the Congress and it's, it's either rejected or accepted at the Congress. So it allows people in the clubs and I did this when I was in the old party. I was pushing for ethnic groups within the party. Then we needed Italian-American groups in the party that were anti-fascist and that were anti-racist and pro-socialist. And we need to do that in the Polish community, in the Jewish community, etc. So I presented a paper on that. And another paper was on the DPRK, how we have to defend the DPRK. And I did that with two or three other comrades. And that's a chance for everybody in the party who's in, a member in good standing to do that. And you send it, and it's going to be published into sort of like a booklet. And then it will be presented to everybody. So if anybody has any problems, that's the time to bring it up. Any questions on what we just said? I think with the introduction of the Internet technology, there is no secret whatsoever that cannot be discovered by the imperialist system, and especially is the spy organs like FBI, CIA, and stuff. And what I discovered is that the Google company releases all the information to the State Department, and there is no way out if we were going to run into some kind of conflict in terms of arrest or detention, because all the information is readily available for the bourgeoisie to suppress our organization or to take individual action against prominent members of our movement. So I think our party members must avoid the internet technology and then only discuss their views in this kind of a meeting, in this kind of a setting, but not exchange views in a very anarchic way, you know, all over the country, all over the globe, you know, because what is secrecy? One of the fundamental features of the communist movement is secrecy. They don't have to know each 
and every information about the movement. And this is going to be very, very dangerous in the future. Thank you, Comrade. Well, all I really wanted to say was I feel that when we talk about democratic centralism, something that is very important to note is that our power comes from our theory and from our numbers. And of course, as working class, it comes from our relation to the means of production. But the thing I want to focus on is the numbers. I feel it's very important to recognize that numbers doesn't mean much if it's sporadic and shooting in every direction. It's only useful when it strikes hard in one direction. And I think that's something that is what makes the Communist Party strong and thus is the reason why we have all these ways to separate us, whether it's white supremacy or homophobia, transphobia, whatever way you would like to slice the party up into smaller moral issues, those things need to be avoided. That's all. Okay, thank you. What I wanted to talk about next is where factionalism begins. Factionalism begins because each and every one of us has personal likes and dislikes. We all have biases. I, for example, I like oranges better than I like apples. I like bananas better than I like oranges, but that's just me. But what does that mean? That means that we all have things that we like and dislike. And so when we get into a personal relationships with comrades, we're going to have comrades that we like and we get along with, that we want to work with. And we're going to have comrades that are difficult for us to work with. So that begins the discussion about, well, so-and-so is this and so-and-so is that. And pretty soon, it happened in our party before most of you were members. We had a situation where we had a comrade who went all over Facebook and said things, that very derogatory things about other comrades. And we couldn't have that. We couldn't allow that. So we had to put a stop to it. And that is the kind of thing that leads. It's not factionalism itself, but it leads to factionalism. And so what happens is that the most factional disputes start off as personal disagreements between people. They start off arguments about things that are very, very insignificant politically. And people feel like they're fighting an issue on principle, and they're really not fighting on principle. What they're doing is they're defending something based on their personal subjective views. And instead of discussing it collectively with the whole group, they discuss it with one person or two people, and they lose the benefit of the party-wide discussion. And so that's why we have the pre-convention, we call it pre-Congress discussion. Pre-Congress discussion is when, as Angelo said, we submit our ideas to the national office. The national office compiles all of those things, papers and opinions and stuff, into a document on all kinds of different things. Could be about the Constitution, could be about the points of unity, it could be about changes in party policy, all kinds of things our response to international questions, whatever it is, that's compiled into this huge book, depending on how many people actually write. But we take those and then we edit those for clarity and for length, 
And then what we do is we take those and distribute those to every member of the party. And it takes place well before the Congress takes place. So that everybody has in their clubs or in their bodies so that they relate to, whether it's district clubs or whatever it is, they take that information and they discuss it amongst themselves. And that avoids factionalism because that gets people discussing everything ahead of time so that by the time the issues are decided, they're decided with clarity and with some kind of scientific base. Okay, okay. thank you. I'd like to bring across something else that I didn't mention before. Everybody should be involved in a commission. Every commission has a right to write up a position for the Congress, every commission of the party. Not every mass organization, of course not. Re is separate, Lux separate, U.S. Friends is separate, but all the commissions and the departments and the people that are involved with them, people can write up what they think that the party should be doing. I'll give you a perfect example. On the question of Israel, the party's position has always been a two-state solution. And all the communist parties in the world have a two-state solution. Another position that is held by Trotskyites and Maoists, but a person in the party who thinks it's a correct position, is a one-state solution. The destruction of Israel and the setting up of a, they call it a democratic state in Palestine. So, you can have that position, you present it to the Congress, it's then discussed and voted upon, and whatever the decision is, that's the party position for the next four or five years. I gave that as a concrete example. And every commission can have the same thing. If you feel that the party's position is not sufficient in a commission, if you're in that commission, you have a right to do it. If you're not in the commission, then you don't have any right to do that if it comes from the commission. Now, I'm going to now go into the whole issue of gossip and why it's dangerous. In Lenin's time, the gossip lasted in one person talking to another, talking to another. In the day of the Internet, the gossip goes viral. It goes viral. And that's why I personally have a problem with a lot of things in the Internet, because I see, as in the national office, I see it causing problems. And we didn't have that during a time when there was no Internet medium. So what does gossip do? Well, did you know that so-and-so is sleeping with so-and-so? And it always seems to me it's always on some kind of a moral principle or something that individuals have. So so-and-so is sleeping with so-and-so. And then somebody else in the club will say, yeah, did you hear that so-and-so is sleeping with so-and-so? Now there is a gossip around this individual, not even about political stuff, but about their moral or ethical way and the way they operate their lives. That is very dangerous. So now, in a Leninist party, we don't discuss that kind of thing. During the 70s, the big thing I went through in the 70s, I remember this, was people wanting to know who you slept with. And it divided the straight community from the LGBT community. And I remember this happening many times in peace organizations and other groups. And the answer was, what you do behind closed doors is your business. Nobody else's. The state had no right to look into that. I don't see people doing that today, uh, talking that way. 
I see them talking a moral judgment on how people treat each other in a relationship. It's a different world. I agree with you. We didn't have anything about women being molested the way they were. None of that was discussed or even young people being molested. We didn't have any discussions like that. The world is different now. It's much more open. I understand that, and I see that. All I'm trying to say is that gossip, if you have any problems with anybody, you go to the, your chair of your club only. That's it. If you don't get any sanction, then you go to your district organizer. That is it. If you don't have any satisfaction, then you go to the chair, uh, the national chair of the party or the general secretary, which that's the last option. That's the last option. So it leads to factionalism because people start communicating with each other, and their aim is a campaign against a certain person for whatever reason. One last thing I think we should say, and that is there was also tax on people's character and misrepresentations of what people did or do. Call it bearing false witness. It's saying things about people that you know to be false. And we definitely don't condone that. I was a victim of that. Some of our other comrades, Comrade Angelo was a victim of that. <laughs> so it's just not a good thing. Some people will do it out of desperation. They have no argument politically, so they'll engage in character assassination. And that replaces any kind of politics and realistic argument. So that's something that we got to be on the lookout for in our party. Okay, thank you. All right, we're going to open up to round robin. In terms of a party line on something, what is the standard duration of time that can be revisited based on new things coming to light about something like it? I imagine like the changes in the views on homosexuality, especially by like the DSM in the psychology community was a radical shift for a lot of people. How long would a party line on something like that change if it had previously been one thing? Well, things could be brought up at the Central Committee meeting, which is once every six or seven months. That's the first place they can be brought up. After that, it has to be brought up at the Congress. So that could be a year or half a year, whatever it is. The same issue, you but you can't bring it up every week or every month. You know what I mean? I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does. What would people in the party do if the consent of the party line came under revisionism or something like that? Uh, we did it. We had this problem before. The same way we did it before. We had this with Browder. Information came out later on with the help of the French party, Jacques Duclos, who went on to the international communist movement, which we don't have today. We don't have a common turn. That helped us a lot. So we follow democratic centralism. If the party is lost, then we may have to start a new party. So really, that's the only way we can do it, comrades. That's it. So at the beginning, well, throughout the class, we talked about unity of will and unity of action within the party and with people who kind of follow the same party line as Marxist-Leninists. So my question is, what's the best way for members of the party who are involved with mass movements like MPD to implement democratic centralism with coalition work with other organizations? Okay, my answer to that 
is non-Leninist formations do not use democratic centralism. So if they have a vote, some of them use consensus, others use voting. When they vote, the party people in the mass organization should all vote the same way. The worst thing you can do is if you have five members in a mass group and it's on an issue and each one votes differently, if it's an important position, you should all vote the same way. That's what I did my whole life. And that's the way to get other organizations to follow a party line eventually. So I don't know if I answered you, but massive groups like MPD do not use democratic centralism. Uh, yes, Carmen. What it really meant to me thinking about this was a great opportunity when we're talking with other people, when we're marketing. The democratic centralism allows for a sense of discipline. Uh, there are many people out there that have been involved in other political actions, but they don't have the same discipline. And people are seeking a unified message, something that they can hold on to that's solid. And I think this is a great strength. And what I learned is from our meeting is that this is another way to go out and really try to attract other people to the party. Yeah, you're right. I feel the same way. They're looking for structure. Thank you, Kamala. What's the difference between a group of people who have a, hold a minority view and advocate for their minority view and a faction? To me, they're the same. After the party has a position, that minority view cannot be pushed. They do that in Trotskyite formations, but not in a Leninist formation. Yes. My view, I was personally opposed to perestroika in 1985, uh, 1986, 1987. My club in Staten Island was opposed to perestroika. The party supported perestroika. So we left the party. It was that important for us. The issue of perestroika was that important for us to leave uh, because we said that perestroika was going to destroy what Stalin built, and sure enough, it did. Look at the history, what it did. It started in Eastern Europe and then spread to the Soviet Union itself. So that's when you, if you have to leave over an issue that it's that important, and I think perestroika was a key point in our ideology. So we left. Thank you. This is definitely one of the more interesting classes that I've attended, and I feel like the ideas of how party members should kind of have the quorum within the party about these different ideas and how we shouldn't almost like speak out of line when it's not the correct time is definitely a, a very important party feature that any successful party needs to adopt in order to actually have any chance at opposing capitalism. Thank you, Comrade. So what a lot of we were talking about was contradictions in the party in the form of like disagreement. You know, I know this is a concept a lot of us are familiar with, but I just wanted to reiterate what Chairman Mao said about this and that there's primary contradictions and there's secondary ones. So whenever you have a problem in the party, yeah, make sure, you know, is it a primary thing if I'm or is it something you can live without? Very interesting point. Thank thinking. you. I think this conversation would have been more focused if we had had a conversation first on what the critical process is, aka the places of proper criticism, so that we could focus our discussion on what the unity looked like after that process. Okay, I accept that criticism. It's a correction, and it would be better if we did that. So what would you call what you're asking for? 
I would call the proper avenues of criticism. Okay. That's a good point. A good book that was written in uh, 1937 by Mao Zedong, Combat Liberalism. It covers a lot of stuff like this, which would be, I guess, a good review if you ever, if anyone on the call needs it ever. Okay. I actually read that. It's very short. For myself and for other newer comrades, could you give an overview about how decisions are made for the party line? I believe the best answer to that is at the Congress. Can I answer that one, Angela? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I'm glad you repeated it. It's a good thing to end the class on. And by the way, there's no stupid question. And American communists were the biggest posers. I asked these things. But the party line is decided at the Congress. That's the leadership body where we make the decision. And as mentioned before that, we have the pre-Congress discussion where we discuss it. And then using democratic centralism at the Congress, we agree on the decision, and then we carry out the decision. Does that answer you, Comrade? Yes, Comrade. I want to thank everybody for attending the class, and I hope everybody learned something. And good night and have a good evening. Thank you all. Bye.